Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, this morning we continue our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew, and we come in chapter 19 to verses 16 through 26. So let's read together the Word of God. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, Go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that by the Spirit you would open these words to us. Lord Jesus, you spoke these words. You have this conversation with this young man. You know what you were saying. And you know we need to hear it too. And we pray you'd bring it to us this day by your Spirit. For we pray in your name. Amen. Well, as we've seen, there is something that connects all these uh, various interchanges that Jesus has in Matthew 19. And that is the characteristics of the new faith community that Jesus is raising up within Israel. That's what Matthew 19 is about. What will characterize this new faithful Israel within Israel? And in the first part of the chapter, Jesus establishes a high biblical value for marriage and for children. In contrast with the human tendency, even among God's people, to devalue them, to see them as a nuisance, a drain, a ball and chain. And now in our text today, Jesus deals with two more topics, wealth and the kingdom of God. And the common thread with each one of these topics is that the bone of contention is what kind of value should be placed upon it. With each topic, we see people valuing or appraising it one way. And Jesus saying that they should value or praise it differently than they do. 
And what this means is this. One way of describing the new faith community that Jesus is forming is that its members have their values straight. That is to say, they value most what is most valuable. One of the defining characteristics of this new faith community, which is the Christian church, is that Christians value most what is most valuable. And our text today gets to the heart of the matter. What should be our supreme value? What should we appraise the highest? What should we prize above all things? And behind this is Jesus' famous declaration, which we read back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what you prize the most is what you will love the most. You cannot do any other. What you prize the most, you will love the most. So asking what you prize the most is another way of asking, what is your first love? What is your first love? And what Jesus is going to tell us in our passage today is that what we should prize above all things is the kingdom of God. And Jesus binds up the kingdom of God together with two other things in this passage. He connects it together with eternal life because that's what the young man comes and asks about. How do I receive eternal life? Now, we're used to thinking when we hear that phrase, eternal life, just in terms of perpetuity of conscious existence or perpetuity of happy existence. And it certainly means that. But in the Greek and in the Hebrew, to the Jews in the first century, eternal life literally meant the life of the age to come, the life of the resurrection. What it means is life, glorified life, life as it was meant to be, life that's been rescued from the fallenness of this world and the fallenness of the curse. It's been rescued from Satan and sin and death. It is the life that Jesus enjoyed upon his resurrection. Life that no man had experienced. This is life as it was meant to be. So it's not just referring to life in the future, life up in heaven as opposed to the earth, in the future as opposed to now. It's talking about the quality of life, the glory of life, here, now, and forever. That's what Jesus died to bring about. And that's what eternal life is about. And that's what this young man is asking about. And Jesus connects that. You notice by the end of the uh, discourse, he's talking to his disciples about how hard it is for a rich man, which this young man was, to enter the kingdom of heaven. The young man's asking about eternal life. Now Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is simply seeing the glorified life, life as it was meant to be, which Jesus has died to bring about, cover the earth. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. But Jesus connects up the kingdom of God and eternal life with one other thing in this passage that is very key. 
with following him. Because that's what he asked this young man to do. Put aside everything that's keeping you from following me. You follow me. That's the good thing you do if you want eternal life. So that is the point of this interchange between Jesus and this young wealthy seeker. What does this young man prize the most? He comes talking about eternal life. He comes talking about the commandments of God. Clearly, he prizes eternal life. Clearly, he prizes the commandments of God and doing the will of God. And clearly, he values highly Jesus because he's coming to ask him. He calls him good teacher. But what is revealed through this interchange is those aren't the things he prizes the most. What he prizes the most is his wealth, the possessions that he has. And that is the main competition here. And it is indeed one of the main rivals for people's chief value, their chief prize down through human history and still today, and that is wealth. Now, you may think, well, that lets me off the hook because I'm not wealthy. I'm not wealthy, so this doesn't apply to me. You don't have to be wealthy to prize wealth. You don't have to be wealthy to have wealth be your chief prize. You can live in abject poverty and prize wealth above all things. Wealth is the chief prize of people, rich and poor, throughout the whole world today and throughout human history. In Proverbs chapter 30, we have a prayer, verses 8 and 9, a very significant prayer. Here's the prayer. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Falsehood and lies, okay, what's he talking about? Here's what he's asking for. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Both of the hypothetical men in this prayer prize wealth. The wealthy man prizes wealth. That's why he, he, when he's full, he denies God. He says, who is the Lord? He has this delusion of self-sufficiency. But the poor man also prizes wealth. He steals and profanes the name of his God. And that's why this man is saying, remove falsehood and lies far from me. He's not talking about just outward lies. He's talking about lies and delusions that are coming up within himself. And he attaches both of the lies and the delusions to prizing wealth. And he fears prizing wealth if he is either rich or if he's poor. So he asks God, don't tempt me with either one of those. Just give me what I need. Because he fears that he will not be able to resist the temptation of the delusion in either case. Wealth is prized for what it brings. 
It brings freedom from want and freedom from worry. It doesn't necessarily actually bring either of those things. But we both know what that means when we say that it brings freedom from want and freedom from worry. This is why we, seeing, uh, we send money to impoverished cult, uh, countries. We want to bring some release from the slavery to want and worry. But people pursue wealth because they want to be free of want. They want to be free of want, worry. But once you're beyond those things, it doesn't stop. Because then you realize when you're not worried about how you're going to eat every single day, you realize that wealth can also bring you leisure and affluence and ease. And so we want those things. But once you have those, you realize it doesn't stop there either. Because wealth can also bring power and status, influence, and admiration. If you become a billionaire today, tomorrow everyone will want to know what you think. They will do magazine articles about you. They'll ask you the opinion on all kinds of things of which you know nothing. Everybody will want to be your friend. Suddenly you will become very popular. So wealth feeds our fallen desire for and delusion of self-sufficiency. In our fallenness, that which we were most created for, a relationship with God as His sons and daughters, that which we were most created for, becomes that which we least want. We simply don't want God interfering in our lives. Now, if we run into trouble, if we're in desperate straits, we may call upon God to come help us. People across the world do. As the old saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. But that's all we want God for. We want Him to come when we whistle Him up, but we don't want Him interfering in our lives. We want an arm's length kind of a relationship with Him. And wealth feeds that, that desire for self-sufficiency, that desire for independence. It feeds the delusion that we can attain that. Even poor people delude themselves that they can be self-sufficient from God. How much more those who are wealthy? Well, we think, okay, let's just take vows of poverty. Then the church has thought this at different times down through church history. Let's just take the vows of poverty. After all, Jesus told this young man to sell everything and give it to the poor and come and follow him. And we want to follow Jesus, so we just need to do that. And then we won't have any more problem. Well, would that it were that simple. Wealth must not be absolutized as good or evil. Things are not good or evil in and of themselves. Good and evil are not metaphysical or ontological concepts in the Bible. Good and evil is a matter of our relationship with God and our relationship with with other people and what are we doing with the things that God has created if wealth is received as the gift of God and used to his glory 
then it is the blessing of God. In Proverbs 10.22 it says, The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. But if money is worshipped, if it's served, if it's divorced from God, so that it gives one the delusion of self-sufficiency, and it causes one to lift up your heart above others, then money is a curse. Um, last summer, I volunteered to help out with the Boise Open golf tournament, which is at uh, one of the private clubs in Boise. Uh, and I was just helping with the parking, just out there in the parking lot. Because it's in a neighborhood, so you have to have people park along the road. And um, I noticed that there's a lot of money pulling in to park. There's Jaguars, there's Mercedes, there's BMWs, there's you know a lot of a lot of nice cars. And I was uh, I was struck with how rude and haughty a lot of these people were. I, was, I even saw a Rolls Royce come in. Um, because we're out there working, you know, just helping with the parking, people volunteering, we're out there in the hot sun, nobody's getting paid anything, and the people are just out there volunteering, doing the best that they could. I was just a flunky, I wasn't even in charge of that. But I was just surprised, because you would think, even from a human perspective, if anybody could afford to be nice, it's the person driving a Rolls Royce. But that's not what we find. It has a way of lifting up, making our hearts lift up. That's why God commanded to the kings of Israel that they were not to multiply gold. They're not to multiply, just multiply the taxes and so forth, the putting on people, so they can multiply their riches. Why? Because it makes you want to lift up your heart above your countrymen. And God says not to do it. When we do that, wealth becomes a curse. Proverbs 11.28 says, He who trusts in his riches will fall. He who trusts in his riches will fall. But the righteous will flourish. Notice the contrast between the one who trusts in riches and the righteous. The righteous are not defined about being whether they're rich or poor. They're defined in terms of not trusting in wealth, but trusting in God. So Jesus' word here to this rich young man that Luke identifies him also of being one of the rulers of Israel. Jesus' words here to him are a prescription designed to make him perfect. That's what Jesus says in verse 21. If you want to be perfect, this is what you do. In other words, Jesus is using the word here perfect in the same way that he uses it in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He isn't talking about moral flawlessness, which is impossible in a fallen world. He's talking about walking with God sincerely and submissively and gladly. That's what he's talking about. That's what he means by perfect. And he, so Jesus is saying to this rich young man, if you want to walk with God sincerely, 
joyfully and submissively, you need to take care of your idolatry problem. You need to switch your supreme values. And you need to sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Jesus is not making a statement that poverty is more spiritual than wealth. Our society gets both of them wrong. We worship wealth and we worship the homeless. We think that there's some kind of intrinsic metaphysical goodness in one or the other or both. Neither is true. But having said all that, wealth, perhaps more than anything else, fuels man's delusions of self-sufficiency. And therefore, wealth is a powerful temptation toward the worship of man. And that's true in all forms of the worship of man. Self-worship, and we have a culture that is eaten up with self-worship. Everybody living in their own private spheres of reality, self-worth, of actualization. But it also powerfully tempts toward the city of man worship. Worship a certain kind of politics and economics because you have to have affluence to sustain such a high order of me worship that we have in this country today. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he twice affirms the difficulty, indeed the impossibility, of a rich man entering the kingdom of God. Now what Jesus is talking about here is relative impossibility, but not in the way that we normally think. He is talking about the relative impossibility of two impossible things, with one being even more impossible than the other. Now, that makes absolutely no sense mathematically, but it makes a great deal of sense in terms of getting the point of cross. It is impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of God apart from God doing the impossible. And that's Jesus' point at the end of this passage. And the disciples pick up on that point. They don't ask Jesus, how then can a rich man be saved? They ask him, who then can be saved? In other words, how can anyone be saved? They get the basic point. That which is impossible with man, the saving of a sinner, is even more impossible with a rich man. Because sinners are deluded and self-deceived, and rich sinners are even more deluded and self-deceived. They have more evidence to work with. And prizing wealth above all causes all other values to get out of whack. And this applies to societies as well as individuals. If you think about it, it is not typically poor nations who trash marriage and children and devalue them the most. It is wealthy, conceited nations like the United States. 
Similarly, in the Old Testament, it was in a state of conceit and self-sufficiency, of wealth and leisure, that Israel sacrificed her children to false gods. That's something that's shocking. We read it about it in Ezekiel chapter 16. It was a practice in the pagan nations around, in their worship of their idols, to take a baby and place it in the arms, in the lap of the idol, uh, together with wood and combustible material, and then to light it all on fire and to burn the baby alive. It was part of the worship. And that's what some of the Israelites were doing. It was becoming common in the Israelite culture. Now, when we read something shocking like that, we think it must have been desperate times. They must have been desperate. Things must have been horrible. They must have just been casting about for anything, for any higher power to somehow help them out. But that's not true. This took place in a time when Israel was extremely affluent very wealthy, with much ease and leisure. And God explains to her, He says, you know, I took you when you were just cast out to die. And I gave you life, and not only that, but I took you to myself as my bride. I made you my people. And not only that, but I made you beautiful. And then I adorned you with gold and silver and jewels and fine apparel. I bestowed my own splendor upon you. Why? Because I wanted you to draw all the nations and all the peoples of the world to me. Because what happens when a nation becomes filthy rich? Everybody pays attention. And even the nations that resent the wealth want to have it. They want to be like that nation. Everybody is paying attention. And God wants his people to preach his gospel. He wants them to tell the truth about where every blessing comes from, including the power to get wealth. It comes from the God who created us and the God who made all things. That's where it comes from. But what Israel did is she became enamored with her own beauty, as though she were responsible for it. She gazed at herself in the mirror and she became very impressed and she began to preach her own gospel. As though her virtues and her attributes and her form of government and so forth had produced this wealth. It was in this state of conceit and wealth that she was sac lost the value of children, lost the value of marriage, and you have husbands putting away their wives for any reason. And that's what we tend to see when we look around. And you have to remember that technology is a form of wealth. And when you consider the things that we take for granted today, hot and cold running water, indoor toilets, showers, air conditioning, uh, stoves, toasters, computers, all of these things we just take for granted and almost everybody in our society has them. 
How many servants would you have to have in the ancient world in order to have that amount of leisure that we enjoy from this technology? You'd have to be filthy rich and have all kinds of servants around to keep you comfortable to that degree. And yet we take them to granted. And what that means is that by any historical measure, even a very modestly incomed person or family today is filthy rich by historical standards. And the wealth of technology deludes modern Western society. Now, for ages, men have a sinful tendency to devalue what they should value the most. Of course, it starts with God, but once you have God out of the picture, then you devalue things like marriage, the gift of God, the blessing of God. You start to see it as a drain. You start thinking about the amount of sacrifice that's involved, the amount of investment that is involved, and you go, why do I want to do that? Why do I want to invest myself that way? It's a drain, it's a ball and chain, and children even increase that. Talk about requiring self-sacrifice. Talk about requiring investment, and it begins to look like it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Now, I think Jesus, throughout Matthew 19, kind of puts things in, in a language that particularly speaks to men, because I think historically men have been the main violators of these principles. We know that in Jesus' day, it was the men who were putting aside wives for any reason, even in Israel. And when Jesus sets forth the high biblical view of marriage, what's the, re what's the response of his disciples? We'll say, well, nobody ought to get married then. That's what it costs. That's what, I mean, that's the response. But in our day, it's not limited to men. See, men want to skate, they wanted an escape hatch from marriage and from children. And that escape hatch was a man could put aside his wife for any reason. The women at that time did not have an escape hatch. But women today do. It's called abortion. Abortion on demand, abortion at any age, abortion for any reason, abortion for no reason at all. And nobody, not the father, not the parents, not anybody, gets a say in it besides the woman. That's called an escape hatch. A way to retroactively get yourself out. Away from marriage, away from children. So today we are equally violators. Our values are completely turned upside down. So the real issue is idolatry. Wealth is simply one of the most common idols. That was the problem with this rich young seeker here, was idolatry. His first love, his supreme value, and what he trusted in, likely, was his wealth. Idolatry, of course, is a violation of the first and second commandments. You shall have no other God before me, and you shall not make for yourself any kind of a idol. 
But most of all, they're a failure of the first great commandment. To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That one together with the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says the Ten Commandments hang on those and all the rest of the law and all the prophets hang on that. It's all about loving God and loving neighbor. And you notice all the commandments that Jesus brings up to this young man have to do with loving neighbor. He sums them up. Love your neighbor as yourself. All have to do with not stealing, not murdering, not committing adultery, not committing perjury. Uh, all of that, honoring father and mother. It's like, why doesn't Jesus mention the first greatest commandment? He mentions the second greatest, love your neighbor. Why doesn't he mention the first, love God? with all that you are and all that you have. That's one of the keys to understanding this passage. Jesus does mention the first one, just not in the way that we're listening for it. There's twice in this conversation that Jesus seems to completely change the subject. The first time is when the man says, good teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Jesus seems to completely change the subject. He says, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. And then after they talk about the commandments, when the young man again says, well, what else must I do? I've kept all these things. What else must I do? Jesus again seems to change the topic when he talks about following him. In both of these times, in the early part and at the end of this conversation, when Jesus seems to go right past what the guy is asking, he seems to change the subject, that's where Jesus is bringing up the first greatest commandment. Because the point is, following Jesus is loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what Jesus, in effect, is saying when he first time says, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. What Jesus is really saying there is, are you calling me God? Is that who you're saying I am? And then in the end, when Jesus is talking to him about idolatry, and says, you have an idol and you have to get rid of it. You have to worship God and love Him above all things. In what terms does Jesus place that? Follow me. That's what that means. All of this applies, it's true only if Jesus is God. And that's where Jesus is discussing the first greatest commandment here. Follow me. Follow me. Understand who I am and follow me. Jesus is God and only by prizing him and loving him above all else and having that shape every aspect of your life, only then does your life begin to take on proper shape. Only then can you begin to love your neighbor as yourself. Only then will you get your values straight by valuing most what is most valuable. 
Only then will wealth, marriage, children, and everything associated with them find their proper place and their proper use. We can't get around this lesson by pawning off this passage as being works versus faith and then giving ourselves a clean bill of health because we believe in Jesus, which is typically how evangelicals read this passage. The issue is, are we prizing Jesus? Are we loving him above all? Are we following him? And have we gotten rid of our idols that stand in the way? And it's not simply a matter of taking a vow of poverty. Again, we've seen. You can worship wealth as a rich person. You can worship wealth as a poor person. You can worship marriage. You can worship children. You can worship celibacy. You can worship having no children. You can worship being a martyr. You can worship giving all your uh, possessions away to feed the poor. And idolatry will take on any shape you want, any face you want. If there's anything that was ever aimed to please, it's idolatry. There is only one shape that an idol can never, ever take. And that is simply obeying Jesus right now, right where you are, whatever you're doing. Idolatry can never take that face. And that's what it means to get rid of idols. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. Simply obey him right now, right where you are, whatever you're dealing with. It is very difficult for us to know and to identify all of our own idols, the things which stand between us and having that kind of obedience to Jesus. We have to trust Jesus to show us and show us he will, just like he did with this young man, if we care to listen. Our, our, our idolatries, our idols are often subtle. They are always deceptive. They differ from person to person and even during the different times of our lives. Idols always hurt to give up. If it's easy for you to give it up, it's not an idol. That's why if you're very anxious to say, okay, I'll just take a vow of poverty. That's not your idol. Maybe your idol is having a vow of poverty. Maybe your idol is being proud of your humility. So getting rid of idols is not simply a matter of everybody give up your possessions, feed the poor. Give up all your possessions and become a burden to other people. Doesn't exactly sound like the gospel. Jesus will show you your idols through his word, through the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters, 
in Christ through your family and your close friends. Close relationships in the body of Christ, time in the Word of God sincerely. This is where Jesus speaks to us most directly. This is where Jesus holds up the mirror to us and shows us what we prize the most. But make sure you're paying attention. Make sure you want to know. Because when we don't really want to know something, we have a really good way of not finding out. Even if Jesus is telling us and other people are telling us. So we can facilitate this process by prayerfully asking several questions. Number one, what do I prize the most? Are there any topics about which I don't want to talk? Are there any topics about which I don't want to hear any sermons? Are there any areas of my life about which I don't want my friends or fellow Christians to speak to me? Are there any areas that when they're brought up I get impatient? Brush people aside. Don't want to hear it. Is there any areas that I don't really want to think about? Those are the indicators that we may have found an idol. We have to remember, I've talked a lot in this sermon about the idolatry of modern America, the idolatry of our society, uh, the idolatry of, of, of people who aren't walking with God, but we need to remember one important thing. Jesus, in this whole passage, is not dealing with pagans. He's dealing with God's people. He's dealing with those who name the name of the Lord. God's covenant people. He's all of these topsy-turvy, messed up values that Jesus is confronting in Matthew 19 are coming from within God's own people. And the whole question is, what's going to be different about the faithful covenant community that Jesus is raising up from within Israel? That's the question. And the answer is, there's nothing different about us from them. Unless we value Christ above everything. Unless we're following Him above everything, which means simply, are you obeying Him right now, right where you are, whatever you're dealing with? That's what it means. Only then are we going to get everything straight. Only then are we going to see the blessing of the relationships that require so much of us. Only then will we see them as a form of wealth. Great wealth. And therefore, great investments. Great investments. No better investments. The kingdom of God, following Jesus, the word of God, and the people, the relationships that he's called you to. So I commend all of these things to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.